We're going to be this morning looking in Joshua chapter 3, so if you'd like to open your Bible to Joshua 3, we'll get there in, in just a moment. We are going through a sermon series in the book of Joshua, and as you're leaving this morning, if you've not already picked one of these up, even if you're our guest and you say, you know what, I probably won't ever be able to come back, um, we would still like you to be able to take one of the uh, bookmark cards that we have on those brown tables as you exit out the main doors, you can find a bookmark. And you can find a white scripture journal that we're using to go through the book of Joshua. And so if that would be a benefit to you and your time of studying God's word, or you just need something to kind of keep you on track in the next few months, we'd love for you to be able to pick up a copy of that as you leave. And that's on that table as you go out uh, the back doors. And you'll find a few of those scattered around as well. One of the things we're doing as a church is we are seeking to memorize Joshua 1, 8 through 9. That we are meditating on God's word, that we're putting in our hearts and our minds, we're thinking about his word so that it shapes our lives so that we're able to live fully for him. And so we are practicing Joshua 1, 8 through 9. This morning, I want us to be able to say that out loud together. I realize you may not have come in this room with a desire to speak out loud, but you're going to be speaking out loud with a lot of other people with you. But we do that because as we speak scripture out loud, God puts it back into our ears, back into our hearts, and it begins to shape us. And so on the screen, you're going to find Joshua 1, 8 through 9. We're going to read through that together, and then we're going to slow down, and we're going to look at verse 9 and practice that just for a moment uh, before we get into the sermon. So guys, bring up uh, Joshua 1, 8. This is three slides. We're going to read it together, the three slides in a row. We're going to read it all together as a church, and then we're going to focus on that last slide. So Without a better plan, we're just going to count to three and go for it. You're going to speak out loud with me as we read Scripture. So here we go. Three, two, one. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then the second part of that verse, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now verse nine. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now when I'm working to memorize scripture, you can do this however works well for you. But the way that works well for me is I have to break it into pieces I have to break it into phrases that seem to fit together. So on the screen, Joshua 1.9 starts out with a question. We know the hardest part is getting the first few words, and once it starts to flow, some of it will come back to us. But you're just asking yourself the question, have I not commanded you? Um, and so put that somewhere where you can see that. Put that somewhere you can reference that. Have I not commanded you? What did God command them to do? Well, I know the answer there is be strong and courageous. What does it mean to be strong and courageous? He gives them two phrases. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. You may have learned this in a different translation with some different words, but this is what we're kind of using to guide us. So that's the answer. How can I not be frightened? Have you seen the world we live in? Have you seen the things that I'm facing? How can I be frightened? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As you're memorizing these, you're not just sticking the words in, but you're saying, how does this stick together? How do these pieces fit together? Well, God commanded us to be strong and courageous. So we're not going to be frightened. We're not going to be dismayed. How can we do that? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's read this one more time, and then we're going to get into to what we're doing. So on the count of three, let's read this together. One, two, three. Have I not 
commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, I pray that as we have gathered here this morning, as we have seen Jackson's baptism, what it means to experience the power of Christ's death and resurrection in our lives, that we no longer live under that condemnation of sin because Christ died for us. And we have abundant life ahead of us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we will not be afraid. And we have come together, God, around your word, gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use this time of Bible study, that you would work, as Jackson told me, not just in my head, but in my heart. And God, for every one of us here, that you would work not just in our heads, but you would work in our hearts so that our lives would be transformed from the inside out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Watch this video really quickly. In miracles. <laughs> Al Michaels uh, at his best. Yes, you believe in miracles. Uh, so I, I had up here, and I can't find it because somebody probably thought, why would he bring this? Um, I've misplaced my golf digest for, for this month. I brought it in, I set it somewhere, and I can't find it. Uh, so I really like to, uh, I like to play golf a lot. And I opened up the most recent uh, edition of Golf Digest, and I looked on the cover, and it was called The Miracles Issue. And I knew that I was going to be preaching about miracles coming up in Joshua 3, and I was like, it's a miracle. David Hillis stole my Golf Digest. Oh, my word. Oh, the truth comes out. Look at that. Yeah. Thank you, David. They would have thought, why did he not bring his Bible? He brought the Golf Digest instead. So uh, my most recent Golf Digest uh, called The Miracles Issue. So one of the things that happens in here is they, they list all these miraculous things that, uh, that happen. There's the story in here of this lady uh, named Uni Haskell. She was 62 years old when she started to learn to play golf. And her instructor took her out, and the very first swing she ever made, she made a hole-in-one at 62 years old. I've played golf in my life, and I've never made a hole-in-one, and I seriously dislike this lady that I've never met. <laughs> that her first swing ever at 62 years old, she made a hole-in-one. That's a miracle. Another lady tells a story in here, um, Allison McCandless. She tells a story about how she was nine months pregnant, and she was out playing golf with, with her family. Um, and on the eighth hole, she made a hole-in-one, and they never actually made it home because as they were leaving the course, her water broke, and she went directly to the hospital and gave birth. So the same day she made a hole-in-one, a hole number eight, and she gave birth uh, on, once again, I've never made a hole-in-one. That's a miracle. Uh, then there's the story about this guy, uh, Matt Gormley, who, uh, no, actually his name is Pat Willis. He was a retired Marine. And he played on a course in Virginia. He made three holes in one in the same round. Can I reinforce the fact that I've never made a hole in one? A miracle. I would consider it a miracle if I made a hole in one. We're going to talk about this idea of God's miraculous power. 
And so I use that introduction of all these things that we might call miracles in sports or we might call miracles in life just as an introduction to say we're going to be thinking about this and what does it mean and on your notes, if you got one of those bulletins as you came in, if it's of interest to you and you want to flip that over on the back, we've got some notes in there that, that might provide a guide if that's something that um, you'd want to use. But the big idea this morning is that the God who saves, this God we've been learning about in the book of Joshua, that the God who saves is miraculously powerful. Now the word miracle is interesting when you come to scripture because we would think that you might find a standalone word in the Bible, either, either in the Hebrew of the Old Testament or the Greek of the New Testament, you might find a standalone word. But what you find is the word that's often translated miracle in your Bible in front of you. In the Old Testament, it's usually the word for wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, wonder or power. And in the New Testament, it's almost always the word that we translate power. And so a miracle, and, and there's some great books I'd love to point you to that I was looking at this week from philosophers and theologians talking about miracles. But a miracle, very simply defined, is just an act of God. It's something that happens that could have only happened by a divine power making that happen. And so we have certain ideas of miracles, ways we think about miracles, but miracles are experiencing the riches of God's glory the immeasurable power of his strength. When God works in such a way that we know that it was only God who could have done that wonder, only God who could have done that power. And so what we find in the book of Joshua is that the God who saves is miraculously powerful. And we're gonna to begin to trace that out this morning. Over the last few weeks, and this is on your notes to kind of get an idea of where we come from and where we're going. We looked in, verse, in week one about how God takes us from death to life. We live in a world full of death. We see death all throughout the book of Joshua, but it's a path that goes from death to life because of Jesus. What Jackson portrayed in his baptism, that we died to our sins in Christ, but we're raised to life. So we go from death to life. Week two, we talked about we go from life to abundant life. That we're not saved just to sit. We're, we're saved to experience the fullness of life that God has called and made available to us. So we go from death to life, from life to abundant life. How do we do that? Week three, because of his great mercy, the God who saves is unbelievably merciful, and merciful oftentimes to the people that we would not be merciful to. His mercy extends beyond anything that we could ever imagine, which is good news for us, because our goal in life is not to get what we deserve. Some people say, I just, man, I just hope what I get, I hope I get what I deserve. Oh man, I hope I don't get what I deserve. Like, I desperately stand in need of God's mercy. And so God works according to his mercy. And then this week, this idea that God works according to his miraculous power. If you have your Bible or your phone open to Joshua 3, we're going to look at all the verses in here. But let me point you to verse 5 to start out with. Let me point you to verse 5. In verse 5 of Joshua 3 there, it says, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now verse 5 here in Joshua 3 is at the core of this chapter, but it's really giving us two themes that go throughout the book of Joshua and go throughout the entire Bible. And the themes are holiness, that idea of consecrate, set apart as holy that we'll talk about, and the idea of wonders. This is our idea oftentimes for, for miracles, a word that other places in the Old Testament is translated miracles. So we see holiness and we see God's power and both of those themes run throughout Joshua they run throughout the whole Bible and so they're core so we're going to look at both of those one after the other we're going to start with the idea of holiness go back to verse one 
So we're trying to get around this idea of what does it mean, that word consecrate in verse 5, what does it mean to be holy? Why is this a big deal? So verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. Okay, the word passed over in verse 1, I could understand why that's not a very impressive word, except it shows up in half the verses of chapter 3 and 4. It is everywhere in Joshua 3 and 4, this idea of crossover or Passover. The word shows up all over the place. The reason it's a big deal is because in the culture of the Old Testament, and really throughout, you can find examples of this throughout the world today, there are boundaries that separate what is impure from what is pure, unholy from holy. And when you cross over those boundaries, you're going from an unholy place to a holy place. And so what's being emphasized here is that people are crossing from a place that's considered unholy into the promised land, a holy place. Certain cultures, when you walk in their front door, you can cross over from an unclean or impure into a clean or a pure. There are these dividing lines. Some people uh, see going into a particular building as I'm entering a holy place. When I cross over, I take off my hat or I take off my shoes, or I do something like that to designate that I've crossed over this boundary. Boundary crossing in the Old Testament is always about holiness. And in the book of Joshua, drawing boundaries is everywhere. You get to chapter 13 all the way to chapter 21, all they do is draw boundaries about who lives here, who lives here. It's living according to God's plan. It's crossing over. So crossover or Passover is an indication in verse 1 that this chapter is about holiness. Go to chapter, or not chapter 2, Go go to verse 2. So we're in Joshua chapter 3. We're looking at verse 2. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from this place and follow it. Okay, three references to holiness in these verses. The first is the reference to three days. Once again, you say, uh, what's the big deal? Well, you go back to places like Exodus 19 in the Old Testament or other references in the Old Testament. Three days is a reference to ceremonial preparation for something that's going to happen. So when you see three days here, it's not just a random pick of, hey, we need three days to get all of our supplies ready. It's three days in the sense of spiritual preparation. It's God preparing the people. When God was going to appear to them on Mount Sinai and give the commands to Moses, they were to prepare for three days. So three days is not a random amount of time. It's another reference that what is going on here is a scene of holiness. It's a scene of worship. You have the reference to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is all over the Old Testament. Even the references in Hollywood appeal to the idea that the Ark of the Covenant carries power. It's a place of God's presence. Even by holding the tablets, the commands that God has given his people, it holds the word of God. The the Ark of the Covenant is used in the Old Testament to lead the people. They follow it. If the Ark comes to you, it can bring great blessing. Or if you don't treat it correctly, it can bring great curse. It can bring great trouble. Somebody touches it in the Old Testament in the wrong way and they fall over dead. It's a sign of God's power, his presence, his word, his guidance with the people. You have there in verse 3 the references that's carried by the Levitical priest. 
everything about these verses say that what is going on here is a holy scene. Something's happening where the people aren't just gathering for a regular battle. There's something going on. You get to verse 4. Verse 4 says, There shall be a distance between you and it, speaking of that ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. That reference to 2,000 cubits, about the only other place, in fact, I think the only other place you find that is in the book of Numbers, and it's used in reference to the Levitical cities, the, the Levitical priests, those people who were set apart to take care of the temple and take care of the sacrifices. They were given certain places to live, and 2,000 cubits was the measurement from their city, and it measured the amount of pasture land until the next city could begin. So you had the Levitical city, you had this certain amount of land, pasture land, that was supposed to be available. It was kind of like a buffer zone of sorts, and then the next city. That's really the only other place in the Old Testament we find that measurement. And so again, you have a reference to holiness. You have a reference to something being set off. And it says, do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. Now, when we're trying to get our kids through a crowded area, very rarely do we say, don't stay close to us, that way you'll know the way to go. Doesn't work well. Kids already get lost on their own without any trouble. Uh, we temporarily mislocated one of our children in a store just yesterday. So uh, this is very fresh. On, on, I say mislocated because they weren't actually lost. We just didn't know their location at that particular moment. But they weren't lost. Um, we say, hey, stay as close to me as possible so you don't get lost. This reference is don't come near it, but stay close enough that you can see it so you'll know which way to go. That the ark that God is providing this direction to his people. And then we're back to verse 5. Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This idea of consecrate is a word that means to set apart, to prepare yourselves. The scene that we have in front of us here, as they are preparing to cross the Jordan, it's not a military scene. It's not this idea of when they were leaving Egypt, they were in a hurry. This is preparation for worship. This is making yourself holy. Now, in, in Scripture, we have to be aware, we're aware of this. When consecrate or holiness is used, it's a two-sided coin, and one side is much more prominent than the other, that God is the one who makes his people holy. Um, and so God does that work to bring us from death to life. You don't holify yourself. You don't make yourself right with God. That's a work that God does. But as he shapes his people, he calls them to be holy. This is the great tension of scripture that you cannot lose. God makes us holy and he calls us to holiness. And those work perfectly together. They're not in tension. They work perfectly together. The God who makes us holy then calls us to that holiness, to follow him completely. So it says to consecrate. One, one reference in the New Testament that's so helpful for this is 1 Peter 3.15. That in your heart hearts that you would honor. That word honor is also the word for set apart. That you would set apart Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. Consecration, setting apart, making this commitment to follow the ways of God is also a mode of preparation. How do we prepare ourselves to live the life that God has called us to live? It begins from a perspective of holiness 
of expectation, of preparation for what God has for us. So there's a really easy application here that I don't want us to miss. As God's people, one of the reasons we sometimes miss the power of God at work in us and through us is we are simply not prepared to see that happen. That our preparation, that our expectation, that our pursuit of holiness and response to goodness, God's work in our life is part of what God uses to allow us to see his power at work in, through, and around us. That you would prepare yourself. Uh, help me out, Owen. Be a little more specific. Okay. Thanks for asking. Um, how do you do that? How do you prepare yourself? Prepare for the day. The way you begin a day, and I know sometimes this is out of your control. <laughs> Kids wake up at funny hours, the dog barks, something happens, your alarm doesn't go off. Things happen. But the way you prepare for a day will have everything to do with how you see God at work in your life that day. I, I almost feel like I'm giving over a magic formula, but I know that it's so much more than that. It's the way that God works in our life. I can tell a difference in my day based on how I start my day. I wish there was another way to approach that. I wish there was something else to say. I can tell a difference. If the first thing I do is open up my phone and check my email and social media, that usually has something to do with the way my day is going to go. If I'm beginning my day from a point of peace, rest, trust in Christ, I need God's word in my heart, so I'm thinking about that, so it's going around in my mind during the day. The way I begin my day, the way I prepare has everything to do with how I see God at work during the day. Now, does God overcome our dumbness every day of our life? Yes, he does. When we don't prepare well, does God still come in and show us mercy? Yes. But the way you prepare will have everything to do with your day. The way you prepare for your week. Never forget the way that the Christian life is laid out is we don't work six days in order to reach a place of rest. We rest in Christ in order to work out of that. So the way the Christian Sabbath is set up in Christ is not your work, you're not working a whole bunch in order to reach a place of rest. You're resting in order to live fully for him. So the way you prepare for your week will have a lot to do with how you see God at work during the week. Gathering together for worship. Simply taking a deep breath, stepping away from those things that seem so urgent, seem to consume us, and saying, God, I need to rest in you, that my identity is not found in what I accomplished this week. My identity is not wrapped up in what people say about me this week. My identity is in Christ, and I will rest, and that will guide my week. Prepare for your day. Prepare for your week. Prepare for worship, gathered worship. What do you do to prepare to come together to worship with God's people. What does that look like? How do, you, how do you live that out? That we need to prepare for what it means to even come together at this time. This is really hard with little kids. I realize this. Sometimes half the battle is just getting to this place on Sunday morning. But sometimes we put obstacles in our way that don't allow us to prepare together together in worship and we're trying to think about as as leadership here in Emmaus what we can what can we do to better prepare people together for worship are we doing things that stand in the way of that or, or don't don't lead in that direction what I want you to see though and this is on your notes this is kind of the big idea that we're pointing at is we can't truly understand God's power apart from holiness before we have any discussion about miracles 
before we think about God's power, the way that we're able to make sense of that, we're able to lead into that, is having an expectant, prepared heart, a life that is dedicated, that's pursuing holiness. So that's the first theme. Now let's lead into the second. So the first is holiness, an expectant, prepared people. Second is a miraculous, powerful Savior. Look at the second half of verse 5. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God is going to act in such a way that what happens will only be because of his power. That reference to wonders there shows up a couple of other places in the Bible. Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard that is underlined on the screen is the same word, the same root word as the word for wonders. So is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything beyond his power? This is the reference to Abraham and Sarah and the coming birth of Isaac there. Exodus chapter 3 verse 20 God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, Pharaoh will let the people go. Wonders there is a, is a reference to the plagues that God will send. So these ideas that God is going to act in power. What does that look like in Joshua 3? Well, let's look at that starting in verse 7. We're going to jump in at verse 7. What, is it, what does God do in Joshua 3 that is so wonderful, that's so miraculous, so powerful? Verse 7. Actually, no, I think I'm off a verse there. I'm on the wrong spot. Ah, let's jump in at verse 13. That was my mistake. Let's jump, we're going back to verse 7. Let's jump in at verse 13. So the people are coming up against the Jordan River here, and in verse 13 it says, When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, even if you have very limited Bible background, at this point you should see a connection. And the connection is between the people coming out of Egypt, the Exodus, as God brings them through the Red Sea and the waters part and they go through the river, and you see the same thing happening here with the Jordan River, that those two events are meant to connect together. The Exodus, God rescuing his people out of Egypt, and now he's going to bring them in the promised land. And in both situations, he's going to do that by separating the waters, and the waters are going to stand up in a heap. The way this is put together, there's two other vague references that you get from these verses. One goes back to Genesis chapter 1, as God is separating the waters, as he's establishing the world. So in the background of this passage, you've got the creation story going on. You've also got references to the flood story, the way these verses are put together and the way the waters are involved in that flood story. You've got some references going there. So you have creation, flood, exodus, promised land, all wrapped up in the way that God is showing his power, taking his people through the water, guiding them to the place that he wants them to go. So you see that there in verse 13. You jump ahead to verse 14. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord. And as soon as those bearing the Ark, in verse 15, had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Why did you get a commercial at the end of verse 15? 
Like, do you see the way the story aspect works? This is on purpose by the author, empowered by God here. But the whole point here is the tension is set up, and then they cut to the serial commercial. Oh, and you're like, I want to know what happens. Uh, our kids are just getting to the age of really being frustrated by this when they watch TV. Uh, so we're watching American Ninja Warrior, and it gets to a really you know, tense moment. Are they going to make it through the course or not? Cut to commercial. Uh, and most of the time, you're just hoping you don't have to cover your eyes during the commercial. But, uh, you know, it cuts through the commercial, and you're like, oh, at that point of tension, why do you get this at the end of verse 15? Why does it say the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest? Part of what's going on here is we're being shown how God's miraculous power is even greater than anything we could ever imagine. Because they are coming to the Jordan at the time of the flood. So it's not just this little creek. It's not this little river that they're crossing. It's this huge floodplain that they're going to have to navigate. So we don't want to think that the people are just, because if you've ever visited the Jordan River in modern day times, it looks like the Jordan Creek. Uh, it's, not, it's not particularly awe-inspiring in its size, but that floodplain reaches out for such a long way that when they're passing through, the author is telling us this is a really big deal going on here. You get to verse 16, and it says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, and obviously you see the word Adam there, Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, another reference to, to what we call the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. I've got a map just to give you an idea of uh, where this is, and so I know it's hard against the white background, but right there in the middle, you have the body of water that we would call the Dead Sea, and you go up it, the Jordan River is flowing down into the Dead Sea, and up there around that red dot on Google Maps is where the city of Adam would be located. And so they're up north, you've got the water that's coming down. The way this area was set up, especially in ancient times, is as you were approaching the Jordan River, there was practically a jungle thicket even had wild animals active in that area that you had to pass through before you get to the river. So not only are they going to cross the river, they've got to navigate this jungle thicket that leads them up to the river. They're coming at flood time. This should feel like an impossible situation. This should feel like there, no matter how many times you played Oregon Trail in school, you are not getting across this river. It's not going to, your wagon's going over, you're not going to make it. That what they are facing will only be navigated. They'll only be able to make it through based on the power of God. Then you get to verse 17, and you've got this amazing summary that happens in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, Now the priest, bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Okay, there's a couple of connections that you have to see in these verses. When it says that the priest stood, that's the same word for the water standing or the water standing up in a heap. So the priest stand and the water stand. They stood on dry ground. Well, we know that the people are going to pass through on dry ground. All Israel was passing over. That's that same word that we saw earlier. They're going to pass over. We saw it in verse 1. Until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The water finished its flow 
just as the people finished passing over. All these connections of verse 17 are just meant to say that what has happened in the river is related to that theme of holiness, that it's interconnected, that you don't have one theme separate from the other. So what the author has done is put all these words together to say, don't forget that what I told you at the beginning, this was a story about holiness. Now you're seeing the miracle, you can't separate the two. It's all mixed together in God's plan that God is working in an integrated way. What do the people learn by what happens here? This is where we want to back up to verse 7 that I jumped ahead earlier. So scroll back up in your phone, look in your, look in your Bible. Why does God do this miracle among the people? Look in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Okay, we can't go very far down this road or we'll steal next Sunday's sermon. Um, What they're saying here is God is showing them I was at work in Moses, taking them to the Red Sea. I'm gonna work through you in the same way so the people will know that I am faithful so that they will know I will continue to be faithful. There's a continuity to it. God is showing them that he's not changed. He's not a different God. He's not come up with another plan. He didn't do one thing through Moses and say, well, that didn't work very well. I'm going to do something else through Joshua. Nope. This is, there's continuity. There's a thread that's going on here. I worked through Moses. I'm going to work through Joshua, and I will continue to work. Skip down to verse 10, and you can see the other point. So the other reason that he does this miracle is in verse 10. Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over. So how will they know when they get into the promised land? How will they know that God is going to take them through all these armies that they face? If he can take them through the water of a flooded Jordan River, he's going to be able to defeat those armies, that they would know that God is not only powerful at a distance, but he is with them, that the living God is at work among them. Why would we gather and worship if we did not believe that the God who saves is miraculously powerful? If we are here because we want to work for the good of society, if we are here because we feel a religious obligation, this is gonna feel extremely stale. But if we are here because we believe that the God who saves is miraculously powerful, that will inspire our worship. That will drive our lives. I have no idea why you would gather together with the church if you did not believe that God was at work doing things that only he could do. Emmaus, if what we do is based on what we can do, we've missed the point entirely. That God is not calling, and we're going to get to this when we get to the story of Jericho and Joshua 6, but if our calling as a church is to do what we can do on our own strength, let's just pack up and go home. I want to see the God who works in powerful, miraculous, merciful, saving ways move among us. That he would capture our hearts, that we would give our lives fully to him, that he would transform us from the inside out, and that he would call us to something that is so much greater than ourselves, so much greater than what we could ever do. What does it mean that God works in miraculous, powerful ways? Well, in a short form, a very short form, we're gonna walk through just a couple of things here I want you to see. 
key points to understand about God's wonders and his miracles. What does it mean? What do you talk about, Owen, that God works in powerful ways? A couple of examples here uh, on, on your notes. The first is that miracles are a form of general revelation. Okay, this kind of gets into a heady topic. It's going to be very short. Hang with me. When God makes himself known to us, when God reveals himself to us, some of that revelation of himself is in general ways. We see the beauty of creation. We sense our own conscience working against us. We see things happening. Then sometimes God reveals himself to us in very specific ways. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ through the word of God. His specific revelation so that we will know his character and his plans. When we talk about God's power or God working in miraculous ways, we're talking about general revelation, meaning that the powerful act or the miracle is never the end in and of itself. It's always meant to point us to God's plan of salvation for his people. Sometimes if we're not careful, people get too wrapped up and I want to see the miracle and they miss the point of the miracle. This is what frustrated Jesus so much in the New Testament. What did the people want to see? The people wanted to see him do a miracle, and Jesus said, no, I can't keep doing this because you are missing the point every time. The word in the Old Testament for wonder that we've seen several times this morning is also a word that can be translated sign, S-I-N-G, meaning God's wonders, God's acts of powers are always meant to point someplace, and they point us back to him, that we worship him, that we would see his plan of redemption. God's doing some amazing things among Muslim people around the world where people are having dreams. They're experiencing God's power in these powerful ways, but those dreams are not the moment of salvation. Those dreams, as these people tell their story, are not the special revelation. They open the door so that when they hear the story about the gospel, it becomes the thing that they say, oh yeah, The God who appeared to me in that dream is the God who died for me and rose again so I can have life. Miracles, God's acts of powers, are forms of general revelation that are meant to point us to Christ, ultimately. Number two on your notes there about uh, miracles and wonders. Miracles and wonders, signs of power, they destroy naturalism without destroying nature. What I mean by that is when you see God working in nature and creation in these miraculous ways, you see this happening in the Jordan River, it doesn't mean that you, can, that you have to stop studying nature. You have to stop studying. The problem is, is when science and naturalism becomes all that exists. And so the only thing we think exists is what we can see, touch, study, feel. Miracles destroy that. God's acts of powers destroy that, but they don't mean stop studying the rivers. If you study hydraulics, keep studying hydraulics. Just because the rivers stop flowing here doesn't mean that all rivers stop flowing at all times. Miracles are meant to destroy this idea that we would close in ourselves and only trust science, only trust nature. No, we, we study those things knowing they point to a God who works in miraculously powerful ways that go beyond what we could ever ask or, or imagine. Number three about understanding these miracles is they are temporarily effective, but they point eternally. When God works in such a way that a person is miraculously healed, they are at the point of death and God works to heal them, that person ultimately dies. You say, oh, and that is so discouraging and morbid and what in the world? Are you that negative all the time in your life? Maybe, I hope not. But uh, 
we think about miracles, like, God, I hope you heal that person. God, would you heal that person? And God may very well heal that person in a way that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. And that person's still going to die. The people walk through the Jordan River, and after they walk through, you know what happened? The river kept flowing. God's works of power are temporary opportunities to see that power at work, but always designed to point us again to something more. So he works in the present so our eyes will be focused on the future. He does something now in such a way that we say, the God who did that right now, oh my word, what's he gonna do in the future? I want to see that, I want my eyes to be focused. This is what frustrated Jesus, we just talked about this. People only saw the miracles as applying to right now. God, heal my family, that is a good prayer pray that prayer and then at their funeral celebrate the God who came back from the dead so that their healing is not just for this life but it's for all of eternity God works in certain ways now to point us to eternity number four picking up some steam here propel us miracles propel us but they don't sustain us This is the idea of emotional experiences that we might have in church or we see God show up in ways and you think, oh man, that was powerful. Hope God does that again soon. The same God who works with miraculous miraculous power is the same God who keeps you going on Thursday. (laughs) The God who works in amazing, miraculous ways that only he could do gets you through English class, sorry English teachers, gets you through another day at the office. The God who propels us is the God who sustains us. God works in miraculous ways, not so we would always need another miraculous thing to happen, but we see his greatness so that we can say, and I trust you, and I will continue to trust you. How does God sustain his people? Through his word and the church, empowered by the spirit. God's word and God's church are no less miraculous or powerful than those things that God might do that really catch our attention. We have those moments. I had a couple of moments this last week, even on a private level. But God does those things, not because we need to seek the next one, but it sustains, he's pointing us to what really sustains us, his word and his church. Next, miracles are for corporate building up and they're privately faith affirming. In other words, God works in miraculous ways so the body will be built up, um, so that the people will be encouraged. But sometimes God does something in your life. You say, eh, I'm not really sure I'm ever going to have a chance to share that with anybody, but I feel my faith affirmed. Sometimes God works corporately with miracles. In fact, let me even go further. I think when you look at the New Testament and even the Old Testament as well, when God does miraculous things, it's for the purpose of the group. It's, it's to build up the, the body. But God also sometimes works in your life in private ways, and you think, whew, God, I really needed that. I see your power at work. I see your love. I see your presence. Continue to lead me going forward. Which leads us to the last thing. Creation, providence, resurrection, church, new creation. Everything that God does to work in power fits within that shape. How do we see God's power? We see it in creation. How do we see God's power? He's led his people. He's provided for them all the way along. How do we see God's power? It's seen in the resurrection of Jesus. How do we see God's power? It's seen in the shaping of the church. How does God save people and draw people together? It's it's a miracle. It's a work of his power. How do we see God's power? We look forward to the fact that what we experience right now is not the end of the story. Individual elements of power or miracle or something happening that goes beyond what we can explain 
all fit within this big picture of what God is doing from creation through resurrection to new creation. I pray that the story of your life would not be wrapped up in what you're able to accomplish. I hope the story of your life is certainly not wrapped up in what I would be able to accomplish. I pray that your eyes are focused on the God who saves, who is miraculously powerful, and he is able to do more than we would ever ask or imagine. This is a good gift of salvation. And I want you to see Hebrews chapter two, verse three on the screen, just for a second as we wrapped up. Hebrews two is talking about this work of, work of salvation. And it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you're here saying, you know what, I'm just really not much of a person of faith, I'm just not sure uh, about what's going on. The God who creates, the God who parts the waters, is the God who rose Jesus from the grave, is the God who is able to heal and transform and convict and comfort your life. Where else are you going to turn? What other God are you looking for than the God who has come near you in Jesus Christ and made a way for salvation? Stop neglecting the path of salvation that's been laid out there. Raise the white flag and say, I can't neglect this. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God wants to work in your life. He wants to work in your family, and he wants to work in our church in a way that only he can do. Let's pray, let's serve, let's move, let's worship in that direction. I'm gonna pray for us. After I pray, we're gonna stand up. We're gonna do the Emmaus response where we sing a song together. We provide an opportunity for you to have prayer here at the front. If you need to share something that God is doing in your life, you're going to have a chance to do that. And while we've seen, we pass the offering plates around. You can put your offering envelope in there. If you have one of those guest cards or prayer cards, you can put that in there. This is our time to respond. I know we're tempted just to shut it down, but, but stay with us because we're worshiping the God who works in miraculous ways. We're going to pray. Now, let's sing together. Let's give. Let's respond how God's leading us to do. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this group of people that means so much to me and my family. God, we've not gathered here uh, to check off a religious box. We've not gathered here trying to make each other feel better. God, we've gathered here because we believe that you are miraculously powerful, that you do things that only you can do, and we stand in need of that every day. You are the God who has created all things, you're the God who has made possible salvation through the resurrection of Jesus, and you are the God who is completely in control of the future. God, I pray if there's anyone here who has been neglecting your salvation, God, that they would respond to you, that they would trust in you. God, that you would lead us ahead as a people. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.